Acts chapter 13. We have gone through 12 chapters of the book of Acts since we started this series called The Church in Motion. We started by looking at the church in motion unleashed. That was the birth of the church with the giving of the Holy Spirit and the mission of the church. We've spent uh, the last many weeks after that looking at the church in motion, not unleashed, but um, the church in motion. And it began at that point. And the next from chapters 3 all the way through 12, we began looking at the church in motion uh, and what God began to do through the early church and how he used the disciples uh, and what happened with the gospel being available and the Holy Spirit being evidenced not just to the Jews but to the, uh, the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. Uh, we are now right, right now in Acts chapter 13 and we're starting the third step in this series. It's called the church in motion unstoppable. And the next number of chapters that go all the way through the end of the book of Acts. We were looking specifically at the missionary journeys and how the gospel message just exploded across the world. Beginning in Acts 13, we begin seeing missionary journeys of the apostle Paul and how he began in three different missionary journeys, exploded the gospel around the world by sharing the gospel message to all nations, all tongues, all tribes, and Luke chronicles examples of that all through the next number of chapters. Now, we're not going to look at every single chapter in detail, but the message and the underlying theme is why we call this the church in motion unstoppable, because what God began to do, remember in Acts chapter 1-8, he says to the disciples, he says, you're going to be my missionaries in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that really was like a vision to say, you're going to be my missionaries in your hometown, Jerusalem, You're going to be my missionaries in your region, which is Judea. You're going to be my missionaries in all of Samaria, which is like all of Israel, not just the pure Jews, but the half Jews. And to the ends of the earth was speaking of the entire world. This gospel message is going to be like dropping a boulder in the middle of a pond in the concentric circles that continue to happen, that it reaches out to the far reaches of the world. And what happens in Acts chapter 13 is the beginning of the ends of the earth. And you see where Paul's mission is then to go with others and bring the gospel message of Jesus Christ to the entire world. So today's message is called the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ. Some of you like to use the term good news. A more traditional Christian phrase is the word gospel instead of using good news. And gospel actually just means good news. Okay, if you didn't know that, when someone says gospel, they're really just saying the good news. So the natural question that I've always had was and is, what is the good news? I remember when I went to seminary for three years, the t- professors would come in and they'd say, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? You know, and they what is the gospel? And I go, I, it's the Bible. What is the gospel? And we talk about that for three years. And I remember at the end of the three years, they'd say, so what is the gospel? I'm like, how do we not know this? We've been here for three years. You know? And, and they, they had a point while they were talking about it because the gospel is not this. The gospel is this. It's small. It's simplistic. Okay, I think some of you have heard me say over the years that when I began years ago in seminary, they, they, they opened that question with what is the gospel by saying basically go through the Bible and write down all the foundational things you think should be spoken of in Scripture that point to the gospel. And I remember taking a front page and a back page and writing in like the tiniest print possible the front page and the back page of everything we needed to know to explain the gospel. And then halfway through, we had to do it again, and I had to condense it to a couple of paragraphs. And then when I left... I actually condensed it to a sentence because I felt like, okay, the gospel really is more simplistic. And what we have done is we have taken so much of the information we see in God's word 
And we've almost convoluted it to say, like, we have to remember what the foundational things of the gospel are really about. So what is the good news of Jesus Christ? It's a question for you to think about this morning. Um, And maybe I can ask it. I'm going to ask it in a little bit of a different way because I think here in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we see very clearly what it is and what it isn't. Uh, And it's expressed uh, visually. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, Just this past week, I think, right? The Winter Olympics kicked off. Am I, am I getting my time right? I was six, so I kind of forget which week was which. Did it just happen? Okay, so 98 years ago, almost 100 years ago, is when the first Winter Olympics were, 1924. Okay, um, they have the Winter Olympics right now. There's 84 countries in Beijing representing all of their countries, and they're going to compete in, over 15, in 15 different sports, I think, for the Winter Olympics this year. When they do the opening ceremonies for a Winter Olympic event, you know, that after they do, like, all the big pomp and circumstance and then they actually bring all the nations in, how do the people from every nation identify with their nation? They, yes, they identify with a flag. Their uniforms look like the colors of their country, right? And somebody is holding one of their flags and they're going like this or they have little ones and they wave them. You know what I'm talking about when they usually do this? I mean, it's a big deal. It has changed over the last couple of years, but it's so cool to see the parade. I think they call it the Parade of Nations when they come through and every one of those countries come through and they identify with their nation based on the colors and the flags that they fly. And you don't need to hear a word from those people to know what country they're from. You simply need to just watch their actions and their behaviors. Am I right? And as long as you understand geography and you understand flags, you know, I mean, there's a lot of them that are like, the colors are like the same in different orders. And I'm like, I don't know which that one that is. But, but a lot of them are very noticeable. Obviously, I mean, when the United States walks in, I mean, there's no flag that looks anything like the United States flag. I mean, with all of the stars and the colors and everything. And there are other ones as that. You know, when China walks in, no other flag looks like that. I mean, there are a lot of Korea, South Korea, same kind of thing. The flags represent the countries and the identity of those people are directly linked to those flags. I think Christianity is very similar. I think if we were going to ask ourselves what the good news of Jesus Christ is and what the gospel of Christ is, we could represent it, yes, by a Christian flag, but that's not where I'm going. The early church didn't use a flag, but they used a symbol. They used an image that represented what being a Christian meant to them. And in that symbol, foundationally, was the definition of what the gospel was. And this is the symbol. Some of you have seen this before, right? Maybe some of you have this on your car, okay? <laughs> I remember when I was young, I wanted to put one of these on my car. And, I, and then I did, because I was like, I want people to know, you know, like I fish. And, uh, and, <laughs> and then I remember selling the car years later. I'm like, I'm just going to leave the fish on the back because maybe it'll be a witness for the guy that bought it. Only for my wife to tell me like a year later, she saw the car going down 309 and the dude was like cutting somebody off. I'm like, he never took the fish off. So he was cutting somebody off when the, the fish was there. And I thought that was a bad idea um, at that point. But this is a fish. Some of you have heard of this. This is a symbol that the early church used to draw and they would draw half of it. When they would go somewhere, the top half would be drawn as an ark. And if you were a Christian, if you were a follower of Jesus, you knew what to do. You would complete the second half so that you would create this fish. Now, the actual word that they use is called ichthus. Some of you have heard of this. It's just the Greek word for fish. Okay, But this represented something more significant, not just the fish. But people that drew this understood that you were a follower of the way. 
meaning you were a follower of Jesus, meaning it was all about the gospel to you. What does this mean? Well, the five letters or the Greek letters that are being used here to form the word ichthus is simply this, and it looks like this. Um, Ichthus, these are the five different letters, and if you spell it out, it says ichthus like that, and they simply mean these specific things. I, C-H, okay, the theta, means Jesus Christ, okay? So the first letter symbolizes Christ with the X is Christ, okay? God's Son, Theos, God's Son, and then Savior, okay? So when someone would write ichthus in here, they would say the fish symbolizes Jesus Christ, that he is deity, he is God's Son, and he is our Savior. And that, in a nutshell, is what the gospel was always about. When people looked at the actual fish, they didn't have to write, Um, the Greek letters in the midst of it. Some of you might be looking at this for the first time and saying, like, you mean like that X there? That she actually means, like, Christ. It does. So when someone writes Xmas, they're not being disrespectful. They're actually just using the Greek letter, meaning Christ. Some of you are like, it's not Xmas, it's Christmas. No, it's, it's, it's the same thing, actually. They're just showing you, like, the little bit of Greek that they know, okay, by doing that little X that's there. So, Jesus Christ, God's Son, is Savior. And I'm showing that to you because the early church understood that their identity was connected through an image. And the image represented the gospel or the good news. And the good news was simply Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. That's the message of Christianity. Um, this morning, I'd say their message, uh, the, the, the series, or the, the message the title today is called The Good News of Jesus Christ. And here's the main thought that I want you to walk away from this morning. Um, and it's simply this Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and Messiah is the good news. Anything less is just news. Jesus Christ as Lord, Jesus Christ as Savior, And Jesus Christ as the Messiah is the good news. That was the message of the first century church. And it is the message for today. Anything less is just news. This is so important for Christianity and for the church today to be mindful of. Because when we look over the next number of chapters, over the next number of weeks, every time you see the gospel message of Jesus Christ being presented to people, it talks about Jesus as Lord Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Messiah. And using different words and different things, you're going to see how that, but this is the foundational message of the gospel. And I'm sharing this with you because we need to be mindful of this today. I need to be mindful of this today. You see, there is a movement, and I don't mean by definition or an organization with a nonprofit, I just mean it is becoming more and more easy in the world that we live in, to associate Christianity with social practices. Well, if I feed people, I'm being Christ-like. Yes, you are. If I'm being benevolent towards other people, I'm representing Jesus. Yes, you are. Those are not bad things. In fact, we need to do that. They call this like a socialistic gospel movement that's happening in our world right now, where it's about doing the practical things, and people will quote passages out of Matthew 25, and they'll say the the parable of the shepherd or the sheep and the goats, where Jesus says, if you haven't done these things unto the least of me, you've done them unto no one. Like when you do them to the least of me, you do them as unto me. You know? And in James, when he talks about religion that's pure and faultless before God, is to care for the widows and the orphans. And, and there's a lot of practical need 
that we need to be talked about, talking about. And the church is supposed to be about meeting all of those needs. But if you walk through the lobby of our church and you go through the lounge, you see that we have our Thrive Center there. And we talk about those who listen, those who learn, and those who live. If you want to thrive and grow spiritually, we need to listen, which means we need to have a personal relationship with Christ. We need to learn, which means we need to grow in our understanding of God's word and understand how the word actually applies to our lives. And then the live part is we need to go do something with it. And if any one of those three areas is absent from our personal experience, it's not going to be a catalyst for us to grow spiritually. There is a whole motivation and movement of people across our world that see the need and will respond to the need, but they don't know Jesus. And can I tell you something? That doesn't save anybody. I know that may sound kind of harsh, and I don't mean to be harsh in the way I'm saying that, but whether you're talking about, you know, even the recent, you know, movement where Chris, uh, Pastor Rob went down, you know, with Christ in Action, and they're, they're helping the people practically with the tornado recovery from the tornado in Kentucky, that is a necessary thing that the church should be responding to. Christ in Action is on, is on um, site for that. Places like Convoy of Hope give their time and their money and their effort, and they mobilize people to do those kinds of things. But if the only thing we do as followers of Christ are to do good things for other people, that's incomplete. Because Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and Messiah is the good news. Anything less is just news. This is the truth of what we need to be mindful of. That's why Peter says when he writes in his letter, in his epistle, always be prepared to give an answer for the what? Hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect. Or when you see people sharing good things, or when Jesus, all through the Gospels, when you see Jesus heal the sick, or meet people, or have lunch or meals at their house, or, or, or care for them in the practical ways, he always does that as a precursor to pointing them to the eternal kingdom. He doesn't just look at someone and say, well, be healed, and then have an us life. No, he doesn't just go to the woman who was caught in adultery and say, well, I don't condemn you. Have a nice life. He says, stop your sinning, right? What is he saying? Stop. Because his point and his message was always about kingdom-based living. It was always something, something bigger. So today in the world that we live in, when we give of ourselves, and we do that actually really well as our church. I mean, whether it's through Boxes of Love or the LEAP program that we're doing, um, benevolence offerings, things that you may do in your backyard with your, with your uh, neighbors or your friends or your coworkers. Those are all good things, and the church actually is supposed to be the most benevolent group of people on the planet. That is the absolute truth. We love people the way that we give practically. We feed their bellies before we talk to them about faith. Right? I mean, that's the way that it's supposed to be. You don't go to another area of the world where someone's starving to death and say, well, if you'll talk to me about Jesus, I'll give you a sandwich. That doesn't make any sense, right? That's backwards. You meet the practical need right then and there so you can help them understand the spiritual significance behind it. And that's why it's so important for us to understand this. So we should do good things. And social gospel practices are necessary and important, but they always fail if they stop short of bringing the message of Jesus Christ, his lordship, his savior, uh, his role as a savior and his role as Messiah. The good news is not the good news if all we're doing are good works. You with me? Like, this is really important. On the flip side, and we can talk about this as well, you can talk about this all you want, and if you don't actually get in the dirt with somebody, they don't care. 
Let's just be honest about that, right? So, I mean, getting on a platform and just talking about Jesus works for some people, but people don't care that you know until they know that you care. So there's truth to that that we have to make sure. This is how the two go together. But I'm sharing this this morning because I think it's easy for us. It can be easier for us, for some. I know it can be for me, and you may be in the same boat. It may be easier for us to bring the gospel to people in practical ways, but when, when it comes to actually talking about who Jesus is, his lordship, his messiahship, that he is the savior of the world and why that matters to others, we can stop short and we can cower or we can be uncomfortable and that's where we need the power of the Holy Spirit in us to continue to move and walk because that is the message that transforms people. So, so we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning and what I would like to do is I'm just going to read an excerpt from Acts chapter 13 and here's what you're going to find as we walk through this is that everything that I just wrote here in this little summary you're going to find in this passage as Paul goes to Pisidian Antioch and he begins to going into the synagogues. And I think it's really interesting the way that they actually separate this. And then after that, I'm going to talk about why this gospel message is so important with three quick reasons before we uh, wrap up with communion today. So beginning in chapter 13, we're going to look at verse 13. We're going to read from 13 to 33 and then jump to 38. So uh, beginning in verse 13... um, We'll get started, but let me just open in a word of prayer before we do that today. Father, thank you so much for loving us and for giving us hope. Thank you for giving us grace and peace. Thank you for being um, God, just thank you for being everything that we cannot be. I pray, Lord, that you would um, use this word as an opportunity to speak to our hearts to draw us closer to you so that you know us. We know you more. We have a greater revelation and understanding of the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, beginning in verse 13, Luke writes, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch, On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law of the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, and let's read this last part together. Ready? Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Stop here just for a second. It was very much custom. When Jews traveled from one city to another, they go to synagogues, that they would welcome their Jewish brothers in the synagogue and give them an opportunity to speak to the rest of the people. Very much common practice. This was not uncommon. They always went to the synagogues first. Jesus even did this. Um, But Paul would go to the synagogues first, and they would be given an invitation. But interestingly enough, the last part of it says, brothers, look, if you have a word of what? What's the word? Exhortation for the people, please speak. What are they saying? If you have something to encourage us with... We want to hear from you. If you have something that's going to build us up or edify us, we want to hear from you. Notice they didn't say, if you have something that's going to stir us up and bring controversy, we want to hear from you. Right? They didn't say that. If this is going to build us up, if it's going to bring exhortation to us, we want to hear from you. Notice the mindset that they're saying. When you have something that you want to share, make sure it builds us up. Interestingly enough, and this is why this is so important. 
what the world thinks sometimes is controversial, followers of Christ see as life-changing. Think about this. Bring us something that's exhorting us, that builds us up, something that's going to make us feel good. And Paul gets up, and he knows that what he's going to say is going to torque some people. But he doesn't stop from saying it. Why? Because he knows that the true foundation of the message that he's about ready to deliver changes people's lives forever. Even though some are going to be upset by it. You see this? This is really, really important for us to understand. Think about what that would look like. When he knows the message he's going to bring can still bring a level of division and will stir some people up and get people upset with him, he doesn't shy away from it because though the world may want for something that is very uplifting and beneficial that's going to pat them on the back and say, brothers, you're wonderful, you know, and that was the best matzah I've ever had, and, and, and this is wonderful, and I want you to know, blah, 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 blah. He's getting ready to share something that will intrigue some, and it will infuriate others. But in his mind, he knows that it's the story of life. It is the message that brings life. So I'm sharing that with you because now he gets ready to tell the story. Let's look at what the gospel message looks like through the message of Paul. Verse 16. Standing up, Paul motions with his right hand with his hand, and he said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he held them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in their wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until this time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Look at verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel, there it is, the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As Jesus was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. And then verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Jumping to verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know 
that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Now on the outside, you could listen to a message like that and think that is pretty encouraging. Unless you're a Jewish leader who basically just heard someone proclaim that this man named Jesus is the Messiah and he's deity and he's the son of God and was raised to life and now you're preaching heresy in the temple of God, in the synagogue of God. So if we read on through the rest of this passage, which we won't, you'll see there were two responses. There were some that were very intrigued and they invited him to come back again the next day and to talk more about this because they were really interested in what he was saying. And then there was the Jewish leaders and they wanted to chase him out of town. And they were really angry at what he was saying and what he was doing. And this is what you see throughout the rest of the, God, of the book of Acts. When they go places, they incite some against them and then they intrigue others to follow him. This is the message. Why? Because Paul was willing to take a risk everywhere he went and bring the true gospel message to everyone he spoke to. He wasn't just there to encourage them to pat their back. He wasn't just there to give them a word that made them feel good. No, in this message himself, he said Jesus himself came. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was unjustly killed, but God raised him to life. This is the message of the gospel. And by doing so, he's inciting people against him because he's accusing leaders of actually killing the Son of God. This is the gospel message. This is so powerful, and it's what we need to be mindful of. So let me ask you this morning, um, why is this so important? Why is the gospel message so important? You know, and I, I'm asking you to take a step back and maybe just do some personal inventory and ask yourself, in your own personal spiritual journey, do you do nice things for other people? Are you kind-hearted? Are you compassionate? Are you benevolent towards others? I hope the answer is yes if you follow Jesus, especially because you're supposed to be as an overflow of what Christ has done with you. But, but how much do you spend in your life and your time talking to others about what the true meaning of the gospel is? Why do we avoid this when the message that changes people's lives is not the Christmas meal we give them. It's not the smile we give them across from our driveway. It's not the little extra gift card that they might receive or the door that we open for them or the whatever. Those things don't save anybody. They're important. But do we take it to the place that God has called his church to take it? Do I take it? Do you take it? Do we take this to the place that God has called us to take this? So that when we look at the person that we know is hungry, or the person that is struggling, or the person that's in an addiction, or the person that just needs a word of encouragement, we meet the need right where it's at, because that's what we're supposed to do, right? But we don't stop short. We go from that place to say, and let me explain to you why I'm doing what I'm doing. In relationship, let me tell you about the one who came to save us of our iniquities and our sin. 
the one who is here reaching out to you because the food I'm going to give you will make you hungry again in a few hours. But the food that Jesus can give you will feed you for an eternity. See what I'm saying? Like this is a big gap that we have sometimes where we're willing to do the practical, but we step one step short. We fall one step short sometimes of actually bringing the gospel to people. Why is the gospel about Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and Messiah. And I want to show you three brief things today that I think if we just reflect on it for a few moments, will really transform how we respond to people with the gospel and why we are willing to take that step when sometimes we choose not to. The first thing why the gospel is about Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and Messiah is that it shows us the severity of our sin. It shows us the severity of our sin. When we make the gospel about the gospel, that Jesus Christ is our Lord, that Jesus Christ is a Savior, our Savior, that Jesus Christ is a Messiah, the Anointed One, which is what Messiah really means, it shows us the severity of our sin. This is not an encouraging thing for us to talk about. I'd much rather talk about other things than sin. Wouldn't you rather hear other things more than sin? I mean, I don't want to talk about sin. I'm guilty of it, but I don't want to talk about it. But the scripture reminds us if we're ever going to come to a place where we recognize Jesus as Lord, Savior, and Messiah, we have to come face to face with the severity of our sin. We have to recognize who we are without Christ and what sin has done to our relationship with God. Romans 3.23 says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. I don't know anyone that's ever come to Christ by seeing themselves as greater than they really are. In fact, God actually says in his word that he opposes who? The prideful, right? But who, what does he give grace to? The humble. He gives grace to the humble. And this is why this is so important, because if we think we're greater than we really are, if I think I'm greater than I really are, I never have a need for God. If I can't see myself for who I am without God as a sinner, Reformed theology, they call it the total depravity of man, which is incredibly encouraging to hear. <clears throat> You're just depraved. Kenneth, you are depraved, my friend. No, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't believe that. I mean, you should, but it's, don't, I didn't say that to you intentionally. <laughs> if we don't see ourselves as completely separate from God because of our offenses and what sin has done as a result of that sin in our life between us and God, if we can't see the gap that exists, we'll never see the need to fill it. Does that make sense? We need to be mindful of the fact that we are one messed up people and we can't fix it ourselves. Humility, the true condition of the world we live in, and our inability to solve it on our own. That's why sin is so important for us to understand. Listen, I, I mean, some of you have been along, around this, this, this planet quite a number of times more than I have. And some of you haven't. But every generation has this solution to the next big problem. 
Every generation has these solutions. And I'm so glad that there are people that are trying to really work and to move forward. We need more people to say, let's combat the issues of the world and the brokenness in the world. But if you go back historically and you look at the number of years since our documented, recorded world has existed, 95 to 98% of the years that have existed, there have been war in this world. It's only been a handful of years that there's been a time of peace across our entire world. The brokenness that is in our world is systemic, and we understand this if we take a step back. There is no politician that's going to fix this, even if you vote them in. They can't fix it. They tell you they can fix it, but then they forget that they tell you that they can fix it. And then four years later, they tell you that they forgot to tell you that they didn't fix it, but they can fix it this time. And that's what happens over and over again, and it's kind of ridiculous if you think about it. Right? I mean, this is what happens in the world that we live in. Now, there's a problem and we can fix this. No, we can't fix sin. I wish I could. I mean, if you think you can fix sin, then I want you to first go home and I want you to try to fix your, sin from your own sinfulness. You know, I was talking to someone this week, and, and it's a problem within the Christian church is that we're really good at looking at everyone else's behavior and questioning whether or not that person's behavior is Christ-like or if this person's behavior is Christ-like or if this person's acting the way and do we really know if they're a Christian or not a Christian? And you know what my response to that is? Why don't I look at myself a little bit more than looking at everybody else? I'm really, really tired of hearing people criticize the church and Christians because of all the hypocrisy that exists, and there is so much of it. But you know what? I'm in the same boat. Like, I do things I shouldn't do. And I say things I shouldn't say, right? I mean, this might just, just, maybe just me. Am I the only one that actually has this problem in this room? Okay. Some of you are going, yeah, you are. So (laughs) if you nodded your head, you're the problem. You feel me? Like, you understand what I'm saying this morning? Like, our thoughts sometimes are our greatest enemies. Our impatience our unwillingness to love others the way that Christ wants us to love, our intolerance of things. And I think we're so good with this person said this or this person did that. And all this should do is remind us that when we look back at ourselves, we can say, oh, what wretched people we really are. And when we reflect on that, the goal isn't to be depressed or discouraged. It's not to beat us up and say like, oh, we're just so messed up in this world and there's no hope and shame on us. And let's... No, the gospel is the answer. We need to begin understanding the degree and severity of our sin because our sin points to our inability to solve the problem on our own. I've never seen someone come to Christ who had it all together. I have seen people come to Christ who recognize that there is a gap between them and this God that we talk about that they could never fill in the gap themselves. This whole mindset of the church is going to collapse if I ever walk in because I'm such a heathen. Well, you know what? You probably are a heathen. And so am I. And the church is full of a bunch of messed up heathenistic people that are forgiven because of the power of Jesus Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? Like when you come across people and they feel like their lives are so jacked up that God would never want them, can I tell you something? One they don't understand the severity of sin because sin of that severe is not just put on them. It applies to all mankind. 
It applies to all of them. So if they look at you and they go, you don't know what I have done in my life. You don't know the offenses. You don't know the pain. You don't know the sorrow. You don't know the, the, the woundedness I've done to other people. I have really screwed up other people. I suck. And then you look at them and go, I suck too. <laughs> or say whatever word you want to say. Listen, I mean, I'm not trying to make light hard about this. I'm just trying to say, the world doesn't need to hear about a bunch of Christians that are forgiven and feeling great about them all their own lives. The world needs to hear a message where the severity of our sin is so great that we recognize if not for Christ, we would be just as lost as everybody else. That's what people need to hear. And it doesn't mean we walk around with our head high. That's why we get to the second point. Our head low. That's why we get to the second point. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ about it being Lord and Savior and Messiah, the second thing it does, it introduces us to the depths of God's love for us. It introduces us to the depths of God's love for us. This is what I love about this. I mean, we live in a world, and I'm guilty of this, that like, my love and desire to want to like, encourage other people sometimes is directly connected to how much I like them. You know? Like, you may not believe this, but, like, I don't love you all the same. Look, I can feel the judgment right now. I can just feel it. Now, and what I mean by that is, and this is just a mindset. I'm not actually picking people out. I'm just saying, you understand what I'm talking about. There are people in the world that you're around that you genuinely just have more kindness and compassion towards, right? That you love them more. And then there are other people that you just go, get away. Like God says, love them. It's like, I love you, but I'm going to love you from a distance. <laughs> Maybe they've hurt you. Maybe they've wounded you. Maybe just their name drives you crazy. I remember when we were having kids years and years ago, my wife and I we were talking about different names of different people. You know, hey, let's, let's name our kid this. And I remember one of the kids, she went, <laughs> my wife was like, we're not naming our kid that. I'm like, why? She goes, because I knew a kid in high school like that. He was a jerk. <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about, right? And I was like, yeah, well, he probably was a jerk, and he probably is still today. Um, I don't know. People make us feel certain ways, and it's easier for us to love certain people than others. Am I right? And it's harder to love other people by their actions. And listen, we're all in that. We're all in both camps. You are in both camps. There are some people that when they think of you, they're just like, I just love you. And then there are other people when they think of you and they're like, I just love you. You know, we're in that same camp. Like, we're in that. I have clearly postured myself in ways or positioned myself where some people think of me and they're like, I know you really care for me and I appreciate you and you're just a good friend. And then there are other people that are like, I really don't care if I ever see you again. I know that. Sometimes it's been intentional. Sometimes it's been unintentional. But the truth of the matter is, love in this world as humans is conditional if we're not careful. But the love of Christ, Lordship, Savior, Messiah, introduces us to the depth of God's love for us. Oh my goodness, how can I express this? It means you're a screw-up. I'm a screw-up. I have no value for who I am as an individual. I am valuable because I'm made in the image of God and God sees that value. 
not because of what I give him, not because of any performance that I can have, but simply because he sees me, he made me, and he wants me. And can I tell you, that's you. He sees you. He made you in his image to know him, and he wants you. That's the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul means in Romans 5.8 when he says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Eugene Peterson says in the message, while we were of no use to him whatsoever. And I love that because his love for us is not contingent on our performance. You understand? He loves you not because of what you do for him or have done for him or can do for him. He loves you because he's God and he made you. He loves you because he's God and he wants you to be in relationship with him. That doesn't mean he's always pleased with our behavior. But it means every one of us is loved by God. Every one of us is loved by God. Hear me. You could have grown up in the church. You could have a thousand Sunday school buttons. You could be in 20 generations. You could be like my one cousin who's a 15th generational descendant of Martin Luther. Surely God loves him more than he loves me. No, he doesn't. Listen, can you even believe this? You could be the worst person that's ever walked on the face of the earth and murdered six million Jews and still be loved by God. Think about that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, like we live in a world, and you hear this, where people are going, well, what about that murderer that's been in jail for 30 years after they butchered all those people, and then they gave their heart to Christ? You mean God forgave them? Yes, he did. Well, that doesn't sound fair. (laughs) Look around. The world's not fair. I am so glad that it is fair, meaning that God looks at every one of us and says, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what you've done. It doesn't matter your background. The gospel message isn't about your performance. It's about my son. And it's about my love for you. And because you are loved unconditionally, unconditionally, you hear that word? Unconditionally, you may never understand it in your life, but God is greater than us, amen? He's bigger than us. And I'm glad that he's bigger than us. And I'm glad that he's greater than us. Because I don't want my human understanding to be the platform by which God bases his love for me. Because that is a flawed practice. I want him to be greater and stronger. And I want to drink. You guys with me so far this morning? Oh man. This is why the gospel is so important introduces us to the depths of the love of God for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul said, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The one who never sinned, the one who was pure, became sin for me became sin for you. You know, I'm standing here and I'm talking about this and I'm like, to you, this might seem like a boring message to you, but you know what? There's no power in the messenger this morning, my friends. The power is in the message. I need you to look at these words. I need you to think about who Jesus is. And I'm saying this going like, I'm, the church has put so much effort and time into performance. And I don't mean just this church. I just mean the presentation has to look a certain way. It has to act a certain way. It has to be a certain way. You go through the New Testament. You know what you see? You see the gospel of Jesus Christ accompanied by signs and wonders and people's lives are transformed. That's what you see. The power is not in the messenger. The power is in the message of Jesus Christ.
For God made Christ who never sinned. Who could you ever say this about? Someone who is flawless, sinless, perfect in every way, chose to become the offense of the world so that you and I could stand before God in right standing. He gave himself so that we didn't have to take that place. It's a beautiful message. It is a definition of the hope. The hope of Jesus Christ. I mean, I never really understood what it would be like to say that I would ever give my life for someone else. I mean, you know, when you're in high school and you're dating people and, you know, Brian Adams is writing songs like, oh, I'll give my life for you and i die for you. And it's like, yeah, 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 Robin Hood would do all that. I get it. <laughs> Every 80s hair band talked about, you know, I love for you. I die, lay my life down. I'm like, dude, no, you won't. Because as soon as she does this one, that, you're at the door. She's out the door or whatever. It sounds good and it sells records. Then you get married and then you have kids. And I realize I'd give my life for my wife. And I have my kids. And I'm like, I would totally give my life for every one of my kids. I wouldn't give my life for your kid. I wouldn't. I'm being honest. I probably wouldn't. Like, why do I want to give my life for you so that my kids can be without a father? You know what I'm saying? Like, let's just be honest about this for a moment. I wouldn't. I mean, unless God came to me visibly and said, do it, I wouldn't do it. I'd pray for you. And yet, God didn't just choose to lay his son down for good men and women. He laid his son down for the refuse of the world. Think about this. He chose to give give his very son so that you and I could experience true life. Isn't this incredible? Like, this is why I think the gospel is so powerful and why we need to be mindful of this. Because he allowed the one who was perfect to become sin so that we could be in right standing with God. So Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, and Messiah. Why is the gospel about this? Well, the severity of our sin. It introduces us to the depth of God's love for us. And the last thing I want to mention today before we get ready to close and our team comes to lead us is that it reminds us of the living hope we have through Jesus Christ. The gospel message reminds us of the living hope we have through Jesus Christ. We need to be mindful of the severity of our sin, right? We need to know who we are without God. That's the first thing. The second thing is we need to be introduced to the love of God. Unless we know how far we are from God, the love of God doesn't make as much sense. Once we understand the price that needs to be paid so that we could be in relationship with God, it elevates the gift of God to a much greater place. We need to know the, sin, the severity of our sin. We need to understand the love we have through God, his unconditional love, and then we need to be reminded of the living hope we have through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can, look what he says, never perish, never spoil, and it never fades. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you 
who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. If I could paraphrase some of what he's saying. He's saying because the gospel message of Jesus Christ is now offered for those who receive the message through Christ, you are now placed in a different category. And that category is a place where hope never dies. Healing is guaranteed in eternity. That's why Paul says in Thessalonians, though we grieve for those that we've lost, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. How many of us have lost loved ones in this world that have known Jesus? And if you could just have a moment with them again, how many of us go, if we only could have a conversation and sit with them one more time, if we could only talk with them for one more time, and how many times have we had those situations and we go, wait a minute, Though I grieve for now because I can't have that conversation, I don't grieve like those that have no hope because my hope never dies. Because I know that there is a great reunion that comes, that those who are in Christ, though their bodies die, their spirits live forever. They live forever and we will be reunited and God will give them glorious heavenly bodies and we will have heavenly bodies. And the hope that he gave us through his son lives forever. So though there is temporary fear, though there is temporary oppression, though we experience difficulty on this side of eternity through the gospel message of Christ and the work of Christ, we have a hope that never dies. You see? We have a hope that never dies. And when my body gives out, and it will give out, when my shell falls apart, I'll be reminded that God told Jeremiah, I knew you before you were ever knit in your mother's womb because you are not this. You are made in my image and your spirit will live on forever because of the faith you have in Christ. There is unending eternal hope, my friends. There is a world that is, as our world stays broken right now, though every generation is going to experience pain, has experienced and will continue to experience pain, suffering, heartache, disappointment, and struggles, can we rejoice in the fact that God has made a way to end it all? God has made a way, and that way is being revealed. It is coming to pass, and he is restoring, and he is renewing, and he is coming back to finish what he started. And that is the beauty of why we celebrate communion. Yeah. This is the beauty of why we celebrate communion. Not just to reflect on the death of Jesus Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 11. Not just to reflect on the death and the sacrifice. When we celebrate, I'm sorry, when we remember the the death and the sacrifice, we remember our need for a Savior because of our sin. But we also remember the resurrection power and the fact that He is coming again. And we do that as a church and our hope is built because the foundation of Christ never fails. The team is going to lead us in the song, Living Hope. And as they're doing that, if you would please take your communion cups and your wafers and just have them prepared. We're going to walk through communion this morning and then the team will finish the song with us. Um, Would you just bow your heads as we prepare this time together to celebrate and to remember his sacrifice? Jesus, we come before you today. I thank you for your goodness and your love. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the work of Christ on the cross, that we can know you, that we can celebrate you, and that our hope never fails. In Jesus' name.